American United is the full-service credit union for our veterans. Learn more about their 1% cashback visa with low fixed rates as well as cash back on every purchase. It's one of the ways they can give back to their members. Learn more at amucu.org. Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at The Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, I've got Jeff Cavanaugh. People aren't often taught how to find problems. They know, you know problem solving, but not problem finding. And I think design thinking brings that to bear. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview pro athletes, world-class musicians, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Before we get rolling, I want to invite you to get involved with Child Rescue, the charity our founders started. To learn more about them, just come to our website, iCollective.co, and check on the Child Rescue tab on our menu. Also, I want to talk to you about one of our show's sponsors. I met these guys back on episode six. CEO Zach Smith was telling me all about starting a skateboard company and how much he hated doing the bookkeeping uh, for a skateboard shop and how he really uh, got led to start this business, Bookly, that's a hybrid combining bookkeeping software and human services. And I'll tell you why I let him become a sponsor. It's because I use their service now. I don't love paying 50 bucks an hour for bookkeepers to do stuff that I know software could do way, way cheaper. But uh, I don't love bookkeeping at all. So I want a real live human who knows what they're talking about to help me with the stuff I don't understand. Uh, probably the straw that broke the camel's back for me, though, the thing that put me over the top was that they could do my taxes and payroll also. Um, so totally suggest checking them out. Go to their website, bookly.co and check out their flat rates. I've been super happy with them. So now on to today's episode. Jeff, thanks for making time. You bet. Glad to be here. So for everybody who doesn't know what $34 billion Infosys is, can you tell us a bit about your day job? You bet. You bet. Uh, Technology services and consulting firm, uh, around $10 billion in revenue, and you mentioned a market cap in the mid-30, $30 billion. We solve hard problems for for our clients, uh, ranging from strategy all the way down to to uh, operational and support types of things. My part of the business, <clears throat> significantly smaller than that, it's it's more like six hundred million uh, for for the consulting portion. We help companies get through tough tough transformations and uh, solve hard problems, and hopefully help them communicate and adopt these ideas and uh, solutions a little more effectively than they would have done on their own. And in addition to this, you're you're teaching and. Uh, you've got your own site going. Do you want to tell us about that stuff too? Sure, <clears throat> sure. The uh, like I said, my day job is, is looking after manufacturing and high tech uh, for for consulting in North America. And the course of that, any good professional services business, you're doing a lot of teaching anyway. And so over the years, uh, really enjoyed it. And as the uh, oh, the network has grown and other people have asked for assistance, especially beyond the company clients, that included uh, some universities uh, on the board at IU for their Institute of Business Analytics helping them, uh, capstone courses and helping them uh, with some of their their, uh, their programs. Uh, and where I'm doing more work these days is University of Texas. They, they've asked me, their Dallas campus in Richardson, to to help 
all these very smart quantitative folks who are going through grad school and getting very deep in marketing and, and IT and analytics to think about storytelling and, and structure the thinking more effectively, so critical and creative thinking. Uh, beyond that, I uh, decided it, was, it made sense to start codifying this, actually writing it down and structuring and organizing it to, to more effectively share with others that they couldn't take the course. That's somewhat limited and somewhat expensive. So in the mid- middle of that, between blog posts and, and writing chunks of content, papers, and eventually a, a book, capturing that in my site, jeffcavanaugh.net. So that's that's the uh, that's the goal, having a good time. It is certainly uh, <laughs> keeps me busy. At yeah. the same time, each of these activities actually reinforces the other because it's helping me to be more effective for our uh, recruiting efforts, for our consulting efforts, and also to, uh, to help these students grow at a faster rate, I think, and develop these skills more effectively. That's great. You know, I was reading your blog, and obviously we were talking before the show started here. Um, I'd love to have you jump into... Um, well, thinking about why like technical things are not enough and outworking the competition probably isn't enough long term and, and just the benefits of advanced <laughs> advanced skills and handling humans, people skills side of things. Well, at least for the foreseeable future, we're still working with human beings. You know, the, the machines haven't overtaken us just yet. Um, and, and even as computing and the digital revolution, the force industrial revolution kicks in, you could argue that the, the economic moats and the um, – the, the differentiating characteristics between one country and another, one region and another, start to vanish because as soon as you walk around with that smartphone, a.k.a. a supercomputer in your pocket, it's really interesting how the level playing field starts to kick in. I think a lot of the angst in, in the U.S., probably Western Europe, is, 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 is some of that leveling. I don't think the world's falling behind. I think the rest of the world is accelerating. All these nonlinear forces are, are kicking in. And so in a world where you don't have the same kinds of advantages from before, whether it's geography or education or the types of uh, advantages you may have had, what does it come down to? It comes down to your skills, how you think, the, the behaviors you have, how productive you are, how you structure your thinking, how persuasive you are, how you convey your thoughts. How cr- can you think critically? Not in a negative way, but, 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 but critically, like, like analytically. And can you think creatively? And can you bring these together? And can you be empathetic? We sometimes say customer-centric. Uh, and, and bring all these things together in a very agile design thinking kind of way. I think that, that appears to be an overwhelming set of buzzwords to some people. But if you peel it back and you organize it neatly, there's simply a series of uh, skills that can be learned, behaviors that can be practiced, and, and skills that can be mastered and competencies and capabilities. So that, I believe, is, if not the, it's one of the most important things that people can learn so they will be relevant whatever technology throws their way. Yeah, you know, um, like we were saying before, a uh, big fan of design thinking. Um, and uh, I think for me, like kind of the genius of – it sounds so simple to have human-designed, you know, human-centered design as, as people are making stuff, right? To not just think about what's most efficient but what's most efficient for the humans that are actually going to use it. Um, but what what is it that attracts you? You know, I know you you went through a little bit of a list there, but specifically with design thinking, what is it about that methodology that's attractive to you? I was very fortunate. The CEO of our, of our, of our company, Dr. Vishal Sika, who who's, who's the leads of SAP and he's comp sci PhD from from uh, Stanford and very very tied to that school. He adopted design thinking in a previous role he had, and he exposed a, a small group of us. I was fortunate to be part of that. So we went to the D school and just jumped in, went through it. And, and tore it apart and put it back together and related it to what we were doing. And a few things emerged. One, it was reassuring to know that 
I'd been doing pieces of design thinking for many years. If you think about the most effective workshops that you've, de- you've delivered in the past, you probably had some elements of it, especially when you had posters, made them interactive and physical and all those things. Uh, so it was great for me to, to see it formalized and to see that credibility, not just with the Stanford D School and the people that were running it, who were running it, and the link back to IDEO and, and other. Uh, it was also not so much a uh, recipe, but, but more of a framework. Do, here's a toolkit. And so I think there's one – that's one thing, to, reinf- to reinforce the point that many of us have been doing pieces of it, but to see an organizing framework and then just keep practicing. The other thing, it's almost as if we've added a piece to the equation or a piece – if I say it differently. People are taught problem-solving skills. You find the problem or an issue, you brainstorm, and you solve the problem. And there's some good problem-solving skills people are. Are all taught, but people aren't often taught how to find problems. They know how, you know problem solving, but not problem finding. And I think design thinking brings that to bear. So you look at the problem space. It's a general area. It's like going to a doctor. I hurt. I have a fever. That's not your problem. That's a symptom. So you you dig into that. You widen that problem space out. You diverge and and you you explore things. You go deep. You you empathize. You you, you collect information. And then you start to prioritize and bring it together, and you settle on the problem. Before you say, I'll take that hill, it's good to know which hill to take, right? And then you go into problem solving. So that's a big light bulb that goes off. If you want to distinguish design thinking from all those other good problem solving techniques. The other one is this concept that that there's desirability, that the customer being centric, or what, what is that user that customer really want? So that, that desirability, you can call it the customer experience. And of course, you've got the thing itself, the functionality, the technical virtue of it. You can call it the feasibility. Is it fit for the purpose? And then you've got the business value. Is it economically, does it even make sense to do? You can call it the viability. The simultaneous consideration of this desirability, feasibility, and viability is what design thinking tries tries to encapsulate. You don't ignore the economics and in, in, in have a feel-good experience, nor do you make it very boring and just try to optimize on cost. And what's interesting is the closer you get to that thing, the function, the, the customer, or the business value, the value, then, then you, you approach zero with your distance. And so what our companies come up with this term of zero distance, the idea that the closer you are to these things, that's where innovation occurs. So to me, that's what design thinking is. Yeah. You know, when you think about whether it's design thinking, critical thinking, these different skills, handling people, um, you know, essentially two decades in the consulting world, what's a, what are some of your observations about the really magnetic consultants that, that have customers that want to come back to them over and over versus those who really struggle? What, what, what would you say sets apart those kind of the people who are the best at that game of consulting? I think first, you've got to have competence. It sounds silly, but uh, you, you, you've got to know your subject matter. So if it's technology, have a good firm foundation, not fluff. Uh, it means you, you've got your reference reference books, your, your certifications, your 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 part of associations, whatever that base is. And I mention that because quite often junior consultants will come to me and say, you know, I'm a thought leader in XYZ. It could be supply chain or some technology or some process. I say, great, great to hear. We need this. Who do you follow? Who are those authors? Which books are on your shelf? Which conferences are you clamoring to go to? What, what's your favorite framework? What, what's your models? What are, you ask, and then they get very quiet. 
you know, they haven't done the homework. So I think the first thing to be that magnetic consultant or someone that is valued is have the content. And the second is reduce the periphery or the fluff as much as possible, the overhead, so the content can come out. This means reducing as many buzzwords as possible. And yes, unfortunately, it may mean banishing paradigm from your vocabulary. <laughs> uh, and, and then beyond that, you know, I've got, got children who are out of college and in college, and and still uh, the likes, the ums, you know, th- there are many things that you can do to the English language that distract from the actual content. So I think being an effective communicator is also good. And there's a broader term I would call gravitas, just like the, the Godfather. If you think about that movie, he, Don Corleone didn't didn't get that gravitas by saying lots. In fact, the less he said, it seemed to be increasing his gravitas. So choosing your words carefully and making your point. I think that's important. And and the other is just a sense of getting something done. You know, Tom Peters used to call it a bias for action when he was going through the In Search of Excellence, one of the first good to great kinds of books back in the back in the eighties. And it's just getting something done, testing it, trying something small. He used the phrase skunk works. Now we're talking about prototypes and failing fast and all that. Just doing it. And this is an also an attribute of design thinking. Because if you if you prototype early, then they're low fidelity prototypes. It might just be to see the size of something or maybe uh, how something might look. But if you, see, if you don't spend too much time on it, you can quickly get an answer. You can share it. People give you feedback. If you spend weeks and weeks on it, you don't have a chance for many iterations. You spend a lot of money and people won't give you accurate information or feedback because they'll be afraid to tell you your prototype is pathetic <laughs> because you spent so much time on it. There's no time for another one. So I think quick, quick iterations as well uh, are important. And then as a consultant, understanding value, understanding economic value. I, I believe a consultant needs to speak four languages. You need to speak the language of a senior executive, which is money, revenue, cost, return on assets, because that's that's ultimately what things translate to. And you need to know. You need to speak the language of a middle executive, which I call it the operational derived metric, like order fill rate or customer service metrics if you're in a call center. It's, it's that middle manager where it's, it's fairly complex, but it's just the real world. There's a monetary aspect to it, but it's definitely an operational metric. You also need to speak the language of the individual contributor, which are transactional metrics. It's just how many widgets are getting out the door, how many cases can you handle, what's your defect rate, what's your accounts receivable. That's where the rubber meets the road. The actual transactions occur, and too often consultants don't go there. And the fourth language is IT, some level of comfort with technology. A good consultant like United Nations translator can go back and forth between those four languages and relate them to their audience. I think it's a really important point because the person can internalize it and not have to try to infer uh, based upon scanty information or, 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 or no shared experiences. I think it's a really important point that you can contextualize your, your, your uh, discussion and what you're offering or saying to multiple audiences because your documents and your, your reports go where you can't go and so you want to make us stand on their own. Yeah. Um, I'm interested back when you're talking about gravitas, besides knowing your stuff so that you know when you talk that you know you knew what you said and mm-hmm. reducing the fluff and the buzzwords, what else do you think contributes to gravitas? Oh, I'm sure plenty of psychological things we don't need to go into today, but I'll just summarize it some level of, of self-confidence. And how do you get self-confidence? It's by experience. But if you don't have experience, you don't have it. It's a vicious cycle. So, and and I, but I believe this is what one of the things I believe aspects of consulting that, that attract young, talented people to it is the opportunity to work with people many years older, several years older, 
on important projects and get some of this great experience. And so it is a, an apprenticeship model where you're working with a partner or somebody more senior. I think the biggest thing is rehearse and get as many, I'll call it implicit, but uh, get as many practice runs in as you can for for whatever experience you're trying to get. Uh, so, for example, you could simply rehearse your meeting a few times. How many people take advantage of the smartphones and just record themselves? It's painful. It takes time. It's not the highest fidelity. But at the same time, you do that three, four, five times. Guess what? You understand, if nothing else, where your warts are, and you start to own the material, and it starts to become you. It becomes you. You, you, you own that material. You internalize it. And I think that's important. The other is just take a little bit of time and do some research. It blows me away that I, I interview hundreds of people, you know, thousands of resumes. If you look at hire people, and not everyone does the research before they come to to interview. And it doesn't take much time. It may take five minutes, and you can scan and get the basics of what a company does. Or like you said before, you can check on LinkedIn. LinkedIn has made it so that it's a crime not to have checked somebody out beforehand almost. Uh, so, so I believe there, there are some little things that you can do that go a long way. You can then relate to what you're doing to that, that, that individual. It, 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 it increases your self-confidence. Let's face it, many people have a lot of skills and talents. The problem is if they get nervous or if the other aspects of their psyche or personality or their their situation get in the way, it constrains their ability to be themselves, to be all they can be. So the idea is to quiet that down so that they can come out. That's whenever you really feel like it's a good presentation, it's a good result. Certainly when you go watch, watch somebody speak, you don't feel, feel for them or, or, or feel like it's a tough situation when you see them come out because it becomes more conversational. It only happens when you practice. But I also think it's being comfortable with a pause, being comfortable with silence, and you can organize your thoughts, and it also lets people know when you're interacting with them that you're considering their thoughts. That's pretty powerful. If you say something, I don't say something for a few minutes, in a, not minutes, maybe a few, couple seconds in response, I'm actually listening to what you said. And then conversely, you know, it goes back and forth. It's not, not simply a rush. I think there are a handful of those techniques, I hate to use the word techniques, but, but behaviors that help people approach maybe more complex business problems or, or consulting issues. Uh, in a way that helps them accelerate, not skip, but accelerate through all these steps in their career development. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Tom Peters. Um, before we break here for part one, what what are other books or or authors from that genre that you feel like are, are critical reading for people in this space? Well, Peter Drucker is probably the godfather of all management thinking. Many books and some great thinking. The wording, like, like any book from, from from decades ago, might be, a little bit dated, but it's a very solid book. The Effective Executive, which is three three small books within within one large book. Those are two of my, my favorite books. There's another one by Dr. Edward Tufte on information design. Uh, it's called The Graphical, so the Visual Display of Quantitative Information. It is the reference book for anything to do with visualization. His principles of graphic design and analytical design stand the test of time. I saw him 20-some years ago. I saw him a month ago, or actually two weeks ago in Austin and chatted with him. And he's added to a story to, to account for the web and, and Matt and big data and everything else. But it's, 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 it's pure gold. And so that's the other one that I would look at. Good to great is good. It's been, I'm not discredited, but it's, people say it's too, too basic. But it's a great, I look at that book as a way to write a report as much as anything. The book itself is good, but even just the way it's structured. They did some research, a few findings emerged, 
they had some checklists. They, so just the structure of the book itself is, a, is almost like it's a, it's a good mini consulting report. Uh, so I think those three books are, are three good ones to start. You know, I'm interested. Um, I'm much more familiar with three of those than with the Edward Tufte one. And uh, one of my, it was actually my clients, uh, Naval Special Warfare down in San Diego. One of my uh, people there was was really rec- recommending him, and I had just have never gotten around to it. Uh, what do you think it is about his stuff that um, has stood the test of time? Like you said, I think he came from. First of all, he came from a purist standpoint. He didn't have something to sell. Uh, he wasn't trying to sell his his company. He's, he's a professor at Yale. He's got, gosh, I think three different degrees between information design and, and economics and something else. So, you know, a Michelangelo or Da Vinci Renaissance man kind of person. He's it's just the content. I, I think he, he is not stumbled upon, but because of his training and because of what he was was uh, the subject matter. He applied these principles of design to quantitative information, and nobody had done that before. Mm. I take that back. I take that back. William Playfair did it back in the 1600s. And if you look up some fantastic graphs that he did for the King of England, and it showed balance of debt, all these complex graphs and charts, it's fantastic. It's art, history, and economics all blended into a wonderful swirl. Uh, so, so I think it's been done in the past uh, periodically, but as far as someone codifying the actual principles, he's the one. He's had four books, three books since then, and uh, they're, they're just fantastic. Uh, sometimes they're hard reading because he, he goes into a fair amount of detail, but the essence is quite good. And I think anyone who considers themselves doing any kind of analysis or, or visual design, uh, they, they would do well to have that in their bookshelf. That's great. Well, we'll end here for part one. Please tune into our next episode where we're going to ask Jeff more about his experience. Thanks so much. We're going to cut off part one of the interview there in the interest of time. We've had feedback that people would rather have 20 to 30 minute episodes. So we're going to break the interviews in half. Please check back tomorrow for part two of the interview. And as always, come to iCollective.co for show notes. And to learn more about child rescue, go to the menu and, and look at our child rescue page and see if that's something that you'd like to get involved with. Thanks for listening. Now's the time to find your color, your paint, and everything to get started during red, white, and blue savings at the Home Depot. Transforming your room is easier than ever. With the best deals online and in-store, you can confidently select your color and the tools for your next paint project. Get a colorful new experience and the right paint for the right price. Save $10 on one gallon and $40 off three and five gallons for a limited time only at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. Limit 25 gallons per household. See store for details.